John 16, let me read the text for you, and then we'll dive in. This is the Holy Spirit's role today, part two. Make sure you get part one if you missed last week. Jesus there at 16.1, you follow along. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming that whenever, when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, we've been looking at chapter 15, and all through chapter 15 has really been the command to love one another. If you look at verse 9, Jesus said in 15.9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And then he says, abide in my love. Verse 10, it says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. This has been his theme to love, to love him, to love him by obeying him, to abide in his love. Look at verse 12 of chapter 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 17, these things I command you, that you will love one another. So he's been telling his disciples on the eve of the cross, he has walked from that upper room, if you will, and he's going through Jerusalem, down through the Kidron Valley, up into Gethsemane, where he will pray and be tried and arrested. But as he leaves that upper room in 14, in verse 31, he's making his way down, talking to the disciples and giving us a richness that is wonderful to behold. But he moves from the theme of love that I just stated to the, to the theme of hate, The word hate appears seven times in the verses that follow. And so certainly we could say that a night of love turns into a night of hate. Hate hostility by the world. In fact, what Jesus is doing is preparing his disciples. That when he's removed from the world, the hatred that would once be spewed on him would come crashing down on the disciples. And he's preparing them. Look at 16.1. I said all these things to you. Here's why. To keep you from falling away. Look at verse 4 again. I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. One historian said the apostles, when you look at all of their life, were ridiculed, hunted, arrested, beaten, imprisoned, And killed. In fact, Christian tradition says that Peter, Andrew, and James were all crucified. It says that Bartholomew was first whipped to death and then crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded. Thomas, 
the apostle was stabbed with spears. Mark was dragged to death through the streets. James, the half-brother of Jesus, and Philip were stoned to death. Matthew, Simon the Zealot, Thaddeus, and Stephen killed for their faith. Paul, we love Paul, had his head chopped off. I mean, that was the life of the apostles. And so this night of love, where he told them to love one another, would turn in from the world side towards hostility towards these men. Certainly wasn't just the apostles. Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna in AD 160, was arrested for his faith. He was tied to the stake, and he would be burned. And when asked to deny Christ, here's what Polycarp said. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then could I blaspheme my king and my savior? And he was burned at the stake at 86 years old. Certainly, if you've been in truth, and if you haven't read this book, you need to read Fox's book of martyrs. Their believers were burned at the stake. Kneecaps were smashed. Children were drowned. Their joints were excruciatingly dislocated, not because they were evil people, but solely because they belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ. So can you imagine walking through the streets of Jerusalem, just the 11, Judas went out to betray him, and you're hearing this profound truth, and he's preparing them for the weeks, months, and years ahead. One historian noted that the persecution of the true church reached the fever pitch during the Protestant Reformation. Reformers had denounced the Catholic system of indulgences and the false gospel of works righteousness. And the response from Rome was violent. One Protestant historian by the name of John Dowling said that the Catholic Church put to death more than 50 million heretics, as they called it, between A.D. 606 which was the beginning and the birth of the papacy until the middle of the 1800s. 50 million people died for their faith. You could continue to go on. Godly leaders like John Huss burned at the stake in 1450. Hugh Latimer, 1555, burned at the stake. William Tyndall, who you're holding in your hand in English translation here, he was the one who founded that from the uh, Greek literature. He was martyred for his faith. In fact, when the chain was put around John Huss, I've been to the place where his statue is, is out front, but they put a chain around him where he would be burned. Here's what he said. My Lord Jesus Christ was bound with a harder chain than this for my sake. Why then should I be ashamed of this rusty one? And when he failed to recant, he declined, or when they, was, they asked him to recant, he declined. He said, what I taught, quote, with my lips, I now seal with my blood. And he died singing a hymn as the flames engulfed his body. Listen, these are the people who have gone before us. So when we gather here today, this means something to our hearts as believers. And we recognize that that command of love would turn into from the world's departure, as they vented their hostility against Christ, it would then come on the disciples. So you might ask the question, why is there persecution then, and why is there persecution now? 
Look at chapter 15, verse 18. Jesus said there very clearly, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In other words, he's prepping the disciples. If it hates you, just know this, that it hated me before it hated you. You may be in the midst of some difficulty even now. You may be at the at the, at the scorn of some people, the persecution of some people. Well, Jesus is helping his disciples understand that. If you will, look it down at 1520. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. He said in verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they did not know him who sent me. And so he's prepping his disciples. How do we respond in light of this hostility? Well, Jesus is going to, in John chapter 14, comfort these disciples, is he not? He's going to give us precious promises from the word of God. Specifically, in chapter 14, he promised heaven to them. He said that I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And I mentioned to you that he doesn't go and get a building team ready like we had to get a building team here. No, he goes by virtue of his death, by virtue of his resurrection, by virtue of his ascension into glory to prepare heaven for us. And in John chapter 14, he promises us eternal life. And then in John chapter 14, he promised to us the person and the permanent presence of the Holy Spirit. And really, that's our theme today. I've titled it again, as I've told you, the role of the Holy Spirit today, or the Holy Spirit's role today. It's a very important word. I've also said that the Holy Spirit, specifically his person, his work, is the most disregarded and certainly the most misrepresented person in the Trinity today. And uh, it's our privilege, though, to see biblically the Holy Spirit's role today in the life of a believer from John chapter 16. In fact, what Jesus said is, in light of the hatred, in light of the hostility, you're not alone. And you remember last week when we were in the scripture, we saw two things at the end of chapter 15. We saw that, number one, we were hated by the world, chapter 15, 18 through 25, But then secondly, he finished it 15, 26, and 27 and said that we're helped by the Holy Spirit. Hated by the world, helped by the Holy Spirit. As you put your eyes in chapter 16, verse 1, down through 15, it really follows the same pattern. We are hated by the world in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 16, and then we are in 16, 7 through 15, helped by the Holy Spirit. Now, what's key for us here, for you, is a takeaway for you, this is not a history lesson, is that victory is not found in isolation. Don't go hide from the world. It's not found in retaliation, but it's actually found in gospel proclamation empowered by the Holy Spirit. You say, well, how so? Well, let's look at the text together and study it. We are, number one, hated by the world. Hated by the world. Let me just touch on this here. Important. Two truths stand out, if you will. Number one, do not be scandalized by the world. It's like he's, he's reminding them. You will be hated by the world, 
And he says, I want you, number one, to the disciples and to us by implication, don't be scandalized by the world. Pick up the text in verse 1. He said there, did the Lord Jesus Christ, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now, he spoke to them and he said, I've said these things to you. Well, what things? Well, maybe we can go back to the greater discourse here of the upper room, but I think in particular, I've said these things to you in chapter 15, in 18 through 27, to keep you from falling away. And so understand here first, and even to us, the danger the disciples faced is not death itself, it's apostasy. Apostasy, the danger of falling away from the faith, if you will. Now, he mentions that word, fall away, at least in the ESV. The Greek word is skandalizo, and it means to be caught off guard. In other words, I'm writing, I'm telling you this, so that you're not caught off guard. I don't want you to be scandalized. In other words, he talks about not being caught. The word means to be caught in a trap. In fact, that word was used... When bait, if you will, was placed in a trap to catch an animal, and when the bait is touched, it would spring the trap, and the trap would lock down. That animal would be deceived. That animal would be caught in a trap, if you will. It would be caught off guard. Some of you have probably set some traps on your own ranches. But he says to these disciples, I don't, I don't want you to fall away. I don't want you to be scandalized. You say, well, how could they fall away? Well, they could fall away in the same way you could fall away. You could just become overwhelmed by discouragement. Imagine walking through the streets of Jerusalem and the one you've walked with, the one whom you've saw do the works of Christ, the one whom you've heard the words of Christ from Christ himself is going to be lifted up on a cross and die. So the possibility lies that they could fall away. I think it will be this way at the end of the world. And so that's why we teach the Bible here at Grace Church of the Valley. I want you to be prepared. I want to be prepared. I want my children to be prepared. Your children. I want my grandchildren to be prepared. Your grandchildren. Maybe they could think something like this. Is God really in control? Maybe they're thinking maybe the Jews are really in control. Because it certainly looks like it's out of hand right now. Maybe they were thinking Rome's in control. Maybe they were thinking we expected so much from him and we received so little. And now he's going to die? So it's possible that the Lord, I think, certainly said that because they were discouraged. And he said, look again in verse 1, I've said all these things to you. You say, well, where did he say it before? Well, just look back just a couple chapters in chapter 13. It's not the first time he spoke of his death or spoke of truth to them. In chapter 13 and verse 19, he said, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, here's why, you may believe that I am he, ever preparing these disciples. In fact, that's really what good discipleship does. Good discipleship, whatever role you have, is always preparing people for what's in front of them. 
It's preparing young people for the next stage. It's preparing men for the next stage. It's preparing women for uh, singleness or motherhood or whatever it might be. He was always telling them things. Look over at chapter 14. He mentions it there again in 1429. He said, and now, Jesus again, I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. He wanted their trust to be in him. In other words, you will face hostility. You will face hatred. Now, the question you might ask would be this. Did they fall away? And the answer would be, yes, they did fall away. You say, how so, Scott? Momentarily, they they fell away. You say, well, why so? Well, it says this in Mark chapter 14. I think it might come up on the screen here. Jesus said to them, now this is Mark 14, you will all, what, fall away. You're all going to be scandalized. You say, well, you just told them and warned them so they didn't fall away. Then, just hours later, he said, you'll all fall away. Same word, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be, what, scattered. As soon as they arrested him. The whole group of disciples scattered, but he gives them hope here, does he not? And after I am raised up, I, he does it all, will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all are scandalized, fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. It's fascinating. He's warning them. Not to fall away, and then they momentarily did fall away. You might be saying, well, gosh, he just gave them a prophetic word that they're going to fall away because it's written that I'm going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That is true. It did fulfill scripture, but I also want you to know that they were fully responsible for falling away. I think it happens to us as well. It could be that you're in the throes of it right now. He's warning you. Here's how to face temptation. He's praying that you don't fall away, but sometimes our choices are not what they need to be. But he restored them in Galilee after the resurrection. Their faith would be strengthened to stand and one day even to die for their faith. So he says, listen, you're going to be hated by the world. You're going to be scandalized by the world. Look what he tells the disciples in verse 2. He says, they probably the Jewish leaders, obviously, will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, he said, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. These Jews are going to put believers out of the synagogue. They're going to kill you. And when they do kill you, they're going to think they're offering service to God. In other words, to be put out of the synagogue, you hear that and I hear that, you don't think much. But I'm telling you, if you were a Jew in this day and they put you out of the synagogue, you just got cut off from all religion. Not only did you just get cut off from all religion, you got cut off of all of the social life of Israel. You were viewed at that point, if they put you out of the synagogue, as worse than a pagan. You would most likely lose your job. You would be seen in that community as a traitor. You would even lose the privilege of an honorable burial. I mean, this would be 
the dreaded horror, remember in John chapter 9, of the blind man's parents being expelled from the temple. They kept inquiring of the parents, do you remember? And they said, you ask him. And it said in 922, they feared the Jews because if you confessed Jesus as the Messiah, you would be put out of the synagogue. In fact, look what verse 2 says. I want you to zero in on this. It says, the hour is coming. Stop there just for a second. You say, what hour? Well, all through John's gospel, won't take you there to every place. It is the hour of his death. It is the hour of his resurrection. It is the hour of his ascension. In other words, the world's hostility is redirected from Jesus, who they vent that on, to these disciples, or we may call them the apostles. In fact, you remember even one time Jesus in Luke twenty-two fifty-three 53 said, I was with you day after day, and you did not lay hands on me. But then he said, but this is your hour, and he called it the power of darkness. Now, predominantly, the persecution was brought by the Jewish nation. In fact, let me just give you an example of this. You say, well, what did that look like? You're, you're reading that uh, in verse 2. They'll put you out of the synagogues. The hour is coming. They're going to hunt you down. Who does that sound like? It sounds like the apostle Paul when his name was Saul and he was ravaging the church before conversion. Look at these texts that come up in the book of Acts. This was Paul. This is what he was doing. Paul, don't, don't forget this. It's all over. I'm just giving you a sample. I persecuted this way to death, binding them and delivering them to prison, both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders they can bear witness about me, Paul says. From, then I, from them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. I mean, this guy was zealous for his Judaism. Look at the next slide. He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing, interesting, the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all of the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury. I mean, you just talk about a false passion. He says, in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He's just going from one city to the next. And then he said this in Galatians. Look at this. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, he said, among my people. And then he said, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. I mean, this was a passionate persecutor of the church until the Lord graciously redeemed him. So Jesus says here of the hatred of the world, being scandalized by the world. He said the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is rendering service to God. Certainly today, hatred of Christianity comes from militant Muslims in the name of Allah thinking that they're doing service for God, right? In fact, look at the text there in verse 2. They will think 
that he is offering service to God. It's the Greek word latria, and it spoke of religious priestly service, if you will. In fact, as I speak in India, believers are being attacked. The latest news report said every 24 hours. So while we sit here in comfort, we need to pray for those believers. There are people being killed every day there in India, and I'm sure much of it is under the banner of religious zeal. In fact, church history tells us that a sermon was being preached as Thomas Cranmer was being burned at the stake. In other words, they're burning him at the stake, and they've got one of those state puppets preaching a service, all because they said he was an infidel. In fact, as they burned him at the stake, the account of church history is that prior to that, he had, a can he had recanted on some items that he felt ashamed for. But finally, when he just by God's grace mustered the strength to stand for the truth of the word of God as he was being burned, he let his hand be burned first because he was ashamed that he put pen to his, you know, his name to the pen and signed those recantations earlier. But while he's being burned, they're preaching a sermon. William Tyndale, constantly fleeing his persecutors, worked at the translation of the Bible into English. And through betrayal and through much disappointment and fear, he was captured finally. He was burned at the stake, and his dying cry revealed his perspective. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. I mean, this is the people that have gone before you, high schooler. This is what our faith is all about. People who have stood for the truth, the apostles who have been burned at the stake, and all of this under the name of some kind of religious zeal. So he says, number one, you're going to be hated by the world, and I do not want you to be scandalized by the world. Secondly, here under the, that first principle, I not, do not be scandalized by the world, but do not be surprised by the world. In fact, look at verse 3. They will do all these things because they have not known the Father nor me. You say, well, they're ignorant. They don't know the Father. They don't know me. And I would categorically say wrong conclusion. They're not ignorant. And I don't think people are ignorant today. You say, why do you say that? Because we just said a couple weeks ago, look at 1522. Jesus said this, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. In other words, he's not denying the depravity of man here. But he is saying that, well, I walked this earth for three years and spoke the words of God. And I spoke his words and I only revealed the Father's will. For them to accredit my ministry to blaspheme, they are guilty of their sin. So far from being ignorant. Look what he said in verse 24. He said, if I had done among them the works that no one else did, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. So listen, he wants to say to these apostles, don't be surprised. They knew of his words, and they knew of his works, and so do people today. In fact, the only people who truly know God are the people who believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that, but I'm going to say it to you again. This is a very focused identity of truth here. 
Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but what? Through me. The only way to the Father, the only way to the Father is through the Son. Of course, not all believe that. Oprah doesn't believe that. <laughs> Oprah has a new program called Belief. Okay? And for her, every possible, every conceivable belief are all on equal footing. But Jesus says, listen, they don't know my father. They don't know me. Look back in 1521. Just glance back. For all these things they will do to you on account of my name. That's why the hatred comes. Because, verse 21, they do not know him who sent me. And so lest the disciples be caught off guard, lest you be caught off guard of the future, possibly, he wants to warn them of the coming attack. So look at verse he says, but I have said all these things to you. He's just pleading with them. That when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. In other words, as long as Jesus Christ was present in the world, the attack was against him. But when Jesus is removed from the world, the hatred again spewed on him would now come to his apostles in other words, he's telling him, you will be in the direct line of fire. And he says, when your hour comes, when that hour comes of my death, my resurrection, my ascension, all of that is in there. I want you to be ready. He, I think what he's saying to him is this. It will seem like the persecutor's rule, but I want you to rest assured, I told you it would be this way. Let me just encourage you today. Some of you are facing things maybe within your own family, maybe by your own son. Maybe by your own daughter. Maybe by a grandson. Maybe by a granddaughter. Maybe by a faithful friend. And I think Jesus would say, rest assured, I told you it would be this way. But then there's a note of sadness here. A real note of sadness. I don't know if you can feel this, but look at verse 5. He says, but now, back to his theme, I am going to him who sent me. And then Jesus said this. And none of you ask me. Where are you going? Now, they had asked him earlier, where are you going? Peter asked him, where are you going? Where are you going? Thomas said to him in 14.5, where are you going? They made a movie of this called Quo Vadis, where are you going? But Jesus says at this point, in this conversation, as they're making their way down through Jerusalem or in Jerusalem, down through the Kidron Valley, he says, none of you ask me, where are you going? And I think it's because he was super clear about his death, but I really believe that none of them asked him because they were so overwhelmed. They were so consumed by their sorrow. Their sorrow, their discouragement was so great that they didn't ask him. Now... I don't know. I mean, I think I would have done the same thing. Don't leave me. You mean you're going? What do you mean you're going? Why would you go? We need you here. I need you here, they were all thinking. And, and they didn't even ask him because, look at verse 6. Here's why. He said, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Beloved, they were so self-absorbed in this massive loss of their Savior and even their own fates that they were sorrowful. 
Now, you and I can look back and say, oh, we can see how they missed that in hindsight. They were blinded to their very own salvation. They were blinded to you sitting in this room. You could not sing the songs that you sang this morning on the assurance of your salvation apart from the death and the, wor- the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, his work on our behalf. But they're just so absorbed right here. They didn't even ask him. I mean, I'm just saying, if you were a friend of Jesus, and that was Jesus, you'd want your friends to say, man, I'm going to go get in a foxhole for you. I'm going to go die for you. I- I'm going to go, I'm going I'm to do whatever. I- oh, these guys? Scandalized. They fled. That's why it's so touching that the women are at the foot of the cross. And then the women are at the grave. Finally, he did appear to them, and he restored their faith. But can you imagine this type of sorrow, this massive loss? In fact, they're still confused later in the chapter. Would you look down in your Bible at 1617? 1617, so some of the disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, in a little while you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does this mean in a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. In other words, they were grasping, were they not? They didn't want to let go of their Savior. And I'm sure, and you've heard me say this before, they were looking for a conquering Savior. They wanted Jesus, the promised Messiah, to overthrow Rome and deliver them from their oppression. They're under Roman rule as this is written. And so they're just wanting a savior that brings in the kingdom. And now they're, you're going to suffer? You're going to die? Sorrow filled their hearts. Grief filled their hearts. It's in 14.1 and 14.27. They're in deep despair. Their savior's departure is a devastating loss. Not one of you asked me where I'm going. You say, well, what does our Lord do with their sorrow? Well, he delivers to you one of the greatest statements in all of the Bible. Okay? You say, what's the statement? Look at it in 16.7. This is precious. He is so tender to them and to us. Nevertheless, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the parakletos, the advocate, he will not come to you. But if I go, Jesus said there, I will send him to you. So follow the flow of John's thought here. Number one, we're hated by the world. But number two, help's coming. And secondly, we are helped by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, it is to your advantage. Now, that's a huge statement. You say, well, why is it to our advantage? Well, you can see it there because he imparts to you, to these disciples, but to all of us, the presence of his Holy Spirit. I think we would say it this way, that the Spirit comes when the work of Christ is done. In other words, he's not going to come until I finish my work, until I die on the cross, until I resurrect on that third day. And then in the book of Acts, he ascended into glory, and the ascension is huge. Maybe we ought to start 
an ascension day in this church. We have Easter, the resurrection, but listen, I'm telling you, theologically, the ascension was just as important. So he says, I'm going to impart to you the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit's going to come when the work of Christ is done. He says, if I don't go, the Holy Spirit will not come, but if I go, I'm going to send him to you. In fact, look back just for a moment at chapter 14. Let me just touch on these. Do you notice these are all in the future tense? He says in 14, 16, and I will ask the Father, future tense, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He's praying to that end. He's got to finish his work. Look at 14, verse 26. He says there, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will, future teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Look at chapter 15, verse 26 from last week. But when the helper comes, 1526, whom I will send to you from the Father. Here is the promise. You say, what's the promise? The heaven, heaven sends the third person of the Trinity. But let me be clear, he must first depart before the Holy Spirit is dispatched, okay? Now, one thought for you. Look back at John 7. He spoke of this very thing. John 7, do you remember that? And, and again, he talks about the rivers of living water that are going to come. But remember this in John seven thirty seven. He said, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up, and I, I love that phrase, He's not some meek, mild-mannered, milk-toast guy. He cried out. The verb there is strong. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's our theme this summer fest and kids fest. Come to me and live. Whoever believes in me, Jesus said, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said, here's the comment, about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet, what? Glorified. To be glorified is to be glorified in his death, resurrection, and ascension. So we're waiting for the Spirit. In fact, I don't know if this verse comes up. Is the next verse in uh, here? Look at this one. Being therefore, remember the the, the Pentecost, the Spirit was unleashed on the disciples at that time, probably um, 40 days from the moment that I'm talking about, being therefore. So now Pentecost has happened. The Spirit came, therefore being exalted. It's important. At the right hand of God. Just stop there. It's his ascension. In other words, his work was done. He died. His work was done. He was raised. His work was done. He was exalted in the ascension at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves, I love this, are seeing and hearing. In other words, it's not something that you will receive. You're seeing it. You're hearing it. The Spirit of God was poured out. You say, well, Scott, bring this together for me. Well, here. As the physical presence, physical presence of Christ, his person departs, he delivers up to you, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit who takes up permanent residence in you 
and he lives in you, okay? In other words, it's to your advantage, and you might still be thinking, hey, how is that to my advantage? Well, uh, this, Jesus Christ in his incarnation was limited to space and time. He took on the limitations of the flesh, okay, in his incarnation, okay? So he could only be with the disciples. He can't be all over the globe. So when he dies, he's raised, he ascends into glory. The Father and the Son dispatch the Spirit, not just to assist you, not just to be with you, but to be in you. That when you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, takes up residence inside you. So he says, listen, it's to your advantage. I go. Because if not, I'm going to be focused here in time and space. But when I go, listen, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's not only going to be able to be with you, he's going to be in you. You say, well, how so? Look back at chapter 14. Let me just remind you of this in verse 16. Remember when he said this? I will ask the Father, 1416, and he, the Father, will give you another helper. He's going to give you another parakletos, an advocate. And remember we talked about the Greek word there, alos. He gives you another of the same kind. In other words, I'm leaving, but he's going to give you another helper. Jesus, of course, was a helper and an advocate in 1 John 2, 1. So he's, he was the first, but he's going to give you another helper. I love this phrase. To be with you, what? Forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be, what? In you. The Holy Spirit, beloved, lives in you. It is the permanent indwelling presence of Christ. The Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence in the life of the, every believer in light of his ascension to the Father. And from now on, the Holy Spirit doesn't just assist you, he's actually in you. This is what we call the permanent indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Listen, that's today. People have said to me, you, you know, I don't know. I, I hear a lot of funny things, you know. Um, it's okay because, number one, I love you, and I'm always going to teach the truth. But, Pastor Scott, your, your church doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit. Really? Where did you get that from? And I don't, I'm not trying to say anything about their heart. Where, where did you get that? Well, you just don't believe in the gift of tongues, and you don't believe in the miraculous miracles. So the Holy Spirit doesn't abide in this place. Listen, I'm just telling you, the Holy Spirit lives in you. He lives in you. He's taken up in the life of every believer, the permanent indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Let me make this comment. This never happened in the Old Testament. Oh, the Spirit was at work, but it came on people, and then it left people. It came on kings, and then it left kings. It came on prophets, then left prophets. But there's something different in the New Testament. He promises in Ezekiel 37, 14 in the Old Testament. Do you remember this? I will put my spirit, there it is, where? 
within you. That happened on the day of Pentecost. And it says, and you will come to life. So God plants his very essence in us. We have the supernatural helper, not just with us, but in every one of us who believes. So Christ says, I'm going to my Father, yet I will come to you in the form of my spirit to dwell within you. So do you understand? Let me just step back. How can he say it's to your advantage? Well, Jesus ascended into glory. It's to your advantage in this way that the Holy Spirit resides in you. You say, well, Scott, maybe he just resides in the elders. No. <laughs> you say, well, maybe he just resides in the deacons and the deaconesses. No. See, maybe he just resides in the people that work with young life and those who are perfect. He just resides with the worship team because they do mute. No. The Holy Spirit indwells in every single believer. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't possess the indwelling Spirit of God, Romans 8, 9. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not part of him. And so some people think here you have to search for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, fill this place, one song says. He's in you. He's in you. In fact, there's more. Look at John 14, 18, and 19. Jesus says here, 14, 18. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. He says, I'm going to come to you. He says, in 19, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. Jesus would die the next day, okay, right? So he wanted to reassure his disciples that they could count on his presence after that. And I think as I taught here in John 14, he's going to rise from the dead. His dying on the cross, though, would not be the end. He says, I promise I will come to you. And he showed himself to his disciples after the resurrection, but the context here implies he was speaking of something more, his spiritual presence in every believer through the agency of the Holy Spirit. So listen, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the action by which God takes up permanent residence in the body of a believer in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come, it would go, as I said, it would empower some servants for service, but not necessarily remain in them. Jesus revealed to his disciples here the new role that the Holy Spirit would play in their lives. He lives with you and he will be in you. Now, you say, well, Scott, what does that mean, though? You mean he's in there? Well, he took up residence in you. Romans 8, 9. I don't know if I have this up there. There it is. You, however, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God, there it is, dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. In other words, if you're a believer, you have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you, every single one of you. Okay? Look at 1 Corinthians 3.16. You know this one. Do you not know that you're, you are God's temple and that God's Spirit, what, indwells in you? This is why he's saying it's to your advantage that I go away. Look at 1 Corinthians 6.19, in the context of sin in the church, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, where? Within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. It goes on to say, therefore glorify God in your, what? In your body. Now, you say, well, <laughs> let me give you this implication, and it's not as though you're saying this, but I wrote this in my notes. <laughs> Rather than saying, if only I could have walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus 
If only I could have been there. Well, Jesus insists here that you're better if, if you, you, it's better with the coming of the permanent presence of the Holy Spirit living in you because he's with you at all times, all places, at your work, in your marriage, with your kids. You say, now, how does he do that? Well, number one, he does that through the word, and he does that by experience. What do you mean he does it by the word? Well, he said it right there that he's going to indwell in you, so I just I want to be clear that he's, he's doing that by his word and by his experience. You say, well, uh, tell me more. You got to come back in two weeks because we're out of time. This is really important because you want something more. What do you mean he lives in me? Well, by his word and by experience. Next week is Mother's Day. Don't forget. And then we'll pick this up in two weeks.